Welcome to the Podium and Panel Podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Your Honors. What's at the end of this case? How did this come about? Are you in the pay of the Microsoft Corporation? Start with the text of the Second Amendment. Your Honor, I, I, I think that that could be viewed as political, but that, that would be... How about the First Amendment? No, Your Honor, I don't, I don't think the First Amendment... You're out again. Still out. I think we're all in Mexico. Welcome to episode 114 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And if you noticed that this is not the usual uh, greeting you get from Dan, uh, we've got a solo episode this week as Dan, who might be the Magellan of the legal profession, is in Montana this week for meetings of the uh, Conference of uh, Bar Presidents in Montana. And uh, just say Wi-Fi isn't great where he's at, so... You're stuck with me this week. We've got three cases, a rule of the week, some predictions sure to go wrong. So uh, let's get right to it. Is there an implied right of action under 215 ILCS 5 slash 224.1 that provides an employer may not discharge an employee for refusing to consent to allow the employer to ensure their life? Can an employee sue on a retaliatory discharge claim for such conduct? Those are the questions to be answered when the Illinois Appellate Court First District decides Critella versus Ascon Inc. The defendant employer wanted to insure the plaintiff employee's life for $30 million, but the employee objected as that was 30 times her salary. Even after being advised that the statute provides that she cannot be discharged for that reason, the employer allegedly still fired the employee. The employee sued on a retaliatory discharge a claimed right of action under Section 224.1, and a whistleblower claim. The Circuit Court dismissed the entirety of this suit under 2-615, and the plaintiff appealed. But only the retaliatory discharge and implied right of action claim. She did not appeal the uh, whistleblower claim. The statute provides that, quote, an employer shall not retaliate in any manner against an employee or a retired employee for refusing consent to be insured. So this is in the uh, Illinois Department of, I'm sorry, the uh, Illinois uh, Insurance Code. In order to find an implied right of action, a court must meet four elements. One, the plaintiff is a member of the class for whose benefit the statute was enacted. The plaintiff's injury is one, the statute was designed to prevent. A private right of action is consistent with the underlying purpose of the statute. And four, implying a private right of action is necessary to provide an adequate remedy for violations of the statute. So a very interesting case and one where the the court got into pretty substantial issues of statutory construction because as it, I mentioned it's in the Illinois insurance code so it doesn't it's not an employment statute but it refers to employer and employee and refers to who's going to be an insured. And the purpose of the insurance code is to uh, regulate insurers principally. Um, it's and to that's who is principally the object of it. And but there's this one section that deals with maybe there's others, but the one at issue here is one that deals with an employee 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 employer relationship and whether you can insure someone's life. And you can understand why they might have some concern about that. The conduct is allowed, 
but the employee has to consent. And if they don't consent, then they can't be retaliated, retaliated against. Um, the court seemed to be very taken with the idea that what other remedy is there, um, if not an implied right of action? Um, how else would the employee's interest be protected? And why shouldn't they imply a right of action here under the statute? Because how else is she going to get presumably uh, back pay, front pay perhaps, other uh, recovery for the conduct of the insurer, for the of the employer in, in discharging her. Now, I will say, to be fair, that the employer seems, they seem to indicate that if this does get remanded, reversed and remanded, and they do litigate the issues in the case, that they seem to take real issue with what the allegations were of the complaint and that they were not at all agreeing that that is what happened, that they retaliated against her for um, failing to or refusing to consent to having her life insured. Um, this, uh, so that's, that's important to keep in mind that as this is on a motion to dismiss, the allegations are taken as true. Whether they are or not is a question for a different day. The argument here simply was that even if they were true, there wasn't a cause of action either for retaliatory discharge or for a whistleblower claim. Uh, we'll, we'll see about whether or not whistleblower claim, or an implied right of action. As I said, they didn't appeal the whistleblower claim, so that claim is, is, is gone. Um, so we'll see what, what happens. Uh, I think it was wise by counsel for the plaintiff to abandon the whistleblower claim. It's not really a whistleblower claim at all. I think they probably just threw it in and they abandoned it uh, on appeal because it's really not their strongest argument. Uh, whether they have, a, I don't know if they need both an implied right of action and a retaliatory discharge. They may be able to proceed on one. I'm not sure why they can't get both uh, or why they may not proceed on both, but uh, I, I, it's hard to see that they're not going to get at least one in a situation uh, where this is this uh, is alleged to have occurred. Now, whether it did occur, that's a whole different kettle of fish, and uh, that may be decided on remand if the case is reversed. But an interesting case and one that is going to require the court to do some statutory construction, perhaps imply a right of action. We've talked before about you know, courts don't do much of implying rights of action anymore since courts have been, uh, I think, one of the great impacts of Justice Scalia has been the hewing to the text, whether it's a statute or, or, or regulation, and leading with the text and implying rights of action has become something that's a bit less frequent. I think there was a case we discussed on the show where Justice Roberts discussed a more freewheeling time when they were implying rights of action. Um, freewheeling was his word. Um, and they don't, they're not in that business much anymore. Now, that has filtered down to the state courts in large measure. They are courts, they are textualist courts. We've talked before about how the Illinois Supreme Court in particular is a court um, that is very much a textualist court. Now, that doesn't mean that they always reach the same conclusion, but they do start with what the text says. So implying rights of action is not a usual thing that they do. We'll, we'll see if they um, what, what the court does here, but it's a because uh, I think the employee has a situation where they really don't have much of other remedy um, for this. One wonders, and this wasn't discussed. I'm not sure it's relevant to the legal outcome, but it is an interesting issue. Is 
why wouldn't she agree? Why did she care? I mean, do they really think they were gonna they were gonna offer? I, I, I don't understand why she didn't want to agree. I mean, plainly they were putting a great deal of faith in her importance to the company, uh, in ensuring her number one, paying her that much, a million dollars a year, and then ensuring her wanting to ensure her uh, for that uh, for thirty million dollars. Plainly, they were. They believed that her, uh, they were the ones that were going to have to pay that premium. They plainly believed that she was worth quite a lot to the company. So that, that was a, a big investment that they were willing to make. And obviously she wasn't along with it. Perhaps it was because she thought the premium could be spent on other things um, or something along those lines. But um, barring that, it's hard to understand why she objected. So with that, we'll take our first break and come back with our second segment. Welcome back to segment two of episode 114 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we're going to discuss a case from the Illinois Appellate Court, First District. There are rules that have to be followed regarding not soliciting clients before the separation is made known to the firm from which you are separating. This is especially so for the departing lawyers. Uh, the departing lawyers are equity owners of the firm or MSO, fiduciary duty to the firm. Issues related to whether the there was misconduct when lawyers left a firm to form their own will be considered when the court decides McNabola Law Group PC versus Kogan. The plaintiff alleged the defendant lawyers arranged to leave the firm before, the firm before they announced their departure, including leasing space and obtaining insurance, which is not by itself a problem. But they also allegedly contacted clients of the current firm to solicit them for, new, for the new firm and allegedly used firm resources to speak with prospective clients that is claimed to have usurped a corporate opportunity. The circuit court granted summary judgment to the defendant attorneys and the plaintiff appealed. Uh, the leading case on this issue in Illinois, and as I've learned perhaps outside of Illinois, is a case called Dowd and Dowd versus Gleason. The plaintiff tried to use phone records and affidavits of some of the allegedly solicited clients to support their position that the defendants acted improperly and created a question of fact, but it seemed the court wasn't buying it. The other problem the plaintiffs seemed to have was proving damage because there did not appear to be evidence that the solicited clients ever recovered in the underlying matters. So having been through uh, two moves in the last uh, year or so, um, it, this is, you know, trust me, I read Doubt and Doubt before I made either of my moves just to remind myself of the things I was and wasn't allowed to do. Um, and so one of the things is you don't, start soliciting clients and don't use firm resources before you, you, you don't, you don't, you don't solicit the clients before you leave or before you announce that you're leaving. And the, um, in this particular situation, the allegation is that they did just that. Now this is, these are personal injury uh, plaintiff's lawyers. That's the kind of work that these lawyers do. Um, unlike the Dowd and Dowd case, which is a, primarily an insurance defense firm, really doesn't matter whether the clients are insurance companies or individuals, the principles seem to be the same, but it's important to understand the context. So there were several plaintiffs, it seemed to be there were about 30 plaintiffs, 30 cases that were alleged to have brought, been brought to the new firm. And, and, but there were only a couple that were really an issue. And one of them was a client who went to the new firm 
but then fired the new firm and then didn't seem to ever make a recovery, which is where the damages issue came up that I referenced. Um, she uh, gave an affidavit that said that she had received a call um, from one of the lawyers that was leaving, who was a partner, an equity partner at the firm, the prior firm, and that he was going to be leaving and that she would need to fill out some documents in order to come with them. And there, so there's a dispute over over whether he was simply telling her what she needed to do or putting pressure on her. Um, so there's ways it can be done and ways it can't be done. And apparently the allegation is that he did it in a way that couldn't be done. Uh, the trial court obviously didn't buy that and granted summary judgment. Uh, but in any event, even if that's true, what damages were there? Because it seemed that she never made a recovery. Now, she may not have made a recovery because she... The reason she fired the new lawyers in the first, the reason she filed the new fired the new lawyers was because they weren't uh, prosecuting her case in a way that she was satisfied with. But doesn't explain why she didn't go hire a new set of lawyers who tried to make a recovery. But it's speculative. The claim is is that it was a speculative damage. Even if there had been misconduct, there still had to be a showing of what the damage was. Um, now, counsel for the plaintiff argued that this was a breach of fiduciary duty. But I still think you need to show uh, damage in order to be able to uh, prevail uh, on that claim. The other one that the other instance that raised that concerned most of the issues or most of the time during the oral argument was a a client that was solicited. She wasn't a client yet, so this is the corporate opportunity situation. So the um, Apparently, they had a rotation of receiving calls amongst the lawyers for prospective clients. And after the decision had been made by these lawyers to leave, but before it had been announced, one of the lawyers who was going to leave, uh, that did leave, it was his, his week or so to, to field these calls. And he fielded a call from this person. And he the claim is, is that he tried to uh, get her to come with him to the new firm. Uh, but there was a period of time, he, they never became, that person never became a firm, a client of the old firm and never became a client of the new firm. There also was that she never, and that was because of her choice, she didn't really seem to ever prosecute the claim. Um, and so it didn't seem also that there was any evidence that she had uh, made a recovery. So again, damages seems to be a problem for the plaintiff in this case. The last issue was an issue related to phone records. And there was a lot of time spent discussing these phone records. So in the period just before the lawyers left, there are a bunch of calls between two of the lawyers that left and one of the junior lawyers uh, that about a case that he wasn't working on with them in preparation for a, uh, a mediation for a settlement conference where a bracket of between 10 and $20 million have been set. So the, I think it was described during the oral argument as the most valuable case in the, in the office, obviously a very valuable case. And they were discussing um, that the claim was, is that there had been improper discussions with this lawyer about how to handle this case and to try to delay the settlement until after they had moved. This is the suggestion that's being made, but they don't have any direct evidence of what was in those calls, just simply that they occurred. And they tried to liken it to the labels on furniture that had been done in the Dowd and Dowd case. And the court said, well, hold it. 
just phone calls. You're going to have you have speculating as to what was talked about on those phone calls. Um, you know, the, there was testimony that the uh, there was testimony that they didn't have any cases with this lawyer, but you know, lawyers talk about cases with their colleagues all the time, whether they're actually assigned to the matter or not. And the lawyers who left testify they didn't recall what the calls were about. Um, it seems convenient, but with the absent in the absence of any evidence of what was actually discussed, uh, which doesn't seem to exist, all you have are phone records, which don't really seem to um, support the uh, uh, support the the allegation that's being made. Uh, and the court, at least one of the justices, Justice Hyman, wasn't buying this this claimed parallel between this furniture that had been marked in the Dowd and Dowd case and the uh, these phone calls. The other thing that happened during the oral argument, it happened on rebuttal a little surprisingly, was is there was this claim that that there had been some ad hominem in the briefing. And he, Justice Hyman, I think it was Justice Hyman, pressed one of the lawyers on whether there actually was any ad hominem. I will say the advocacy in this case is by some of the best commercial lawyers in the city. Uh, the advocacy was very, very good. And the, the justices knew these lawyers and uh, on both sides uh, and to be of, of extreme quality. And there were there were claims that they had uh, made ad hominem attacks that the court didn't like, the, that there just wasn't didn't seem to be support for that they hadn't made such claims, uh, not about the lawyers each other, but about the principal of the Magdabola firm um, that he wasn't trustworthy or, or claims like this. Uh, but it didn't seem that they ever actually made those claims in the briefs. So the court didn't like that. Uh, it's usually better to stay away from that kind of thing because it usually doesn't make the court very happy. So with that, we'll take our next break and come back with uh, segment three of episode 114 of the Podium Panel Podcast. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel Podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you. We're, we're back for segment three of episode 114 of the Podium and Panel podcast, and we'll be discussing now a legal malpractice case. Family law and legal malpractice go together like peanut butter and jelly. That's the pair in Nutter versus Schiller, DeCanto, and Fleck argued this week before the Illinois Appellate Court, 2nd District, with a good helping of civil procedure thrown in. The defendant law firm, which is one of the largest and most well-respected family law firms in uh, in Chicago, filed a fee petition in a dissolution proceeding against the plaintiff. And in response, the plaintiff filed a legal malpractice action that he attempted, or did he, that's really the issue, uh, to consolidate with the petition. The circuit court granted the petition and did not rule on the consolidation motion that may or may not have been filed and may or may not have been noticed. The record was really rather unclear, which may be a real problem for the plaintiff. The legal malpractice action was then dismissed as barred by race judicata. On appeal, 
The plaintiff asserts that the ratio to cut should not apply because the fee petition and the legal malpractice action do not have the same elements. There is not standard of care analysis in a fee petition, and the fee petition in the dissolution proceedings was not a final judgment from which appeal could be taken. And that was an issue of dispute between the parties as to whether there was a final judgment or not. The justices seemed to be concerned about a rule that barred legal malpractice actions where a fee petition had been granted and the defendant law firm responded that that, that what made this case unique from other cases where the, the alleged malpractice was discovered after a fee petition was granted was that the legal malpractice action in this case was filed before the fee petition and the plaintiff was not diligent in getting the matter heard. So this is a, uh, a very interesting situation um, and, and the procedure here is uh, somewhat, somewhat difficult to wrap your arms around. So the plaintiff files this legal malpractice action and then tries to consolidate it together with the fee petition. It's unclear why. It's not really a response to the fee petition. It's a separate action. But then what happened is that the court dismisses it because it says, well, we've already decided that you owe these, these monies and, and apparently also decides that the um, that there is no cause of, uh, that there, the race judicata applies. I will say I am really, I really don't understand the procedure here. And I'm going to be very interested to see what the appellate court has to say about the procedure because I, I don't understand what one has to do with the other. Uh, they seem to be separate issues. Um, and maybe I don't understand how this works quite right, but it seems to be a, a really two different things going on here. And that if they do draw this, um, they do draw this distinction, uh, you're going to, or do allow this, I should say, you're going to bar a lot of, uh, a lot of legal malpractice claims. Now, that may be good for, for lawyers, and particularly family lawyers, but I, I don't understand quite how race judicata fits here when they, they don't really seem to be the same thing. They seem to be two different issues. Um, there's a lot missing here. Um, the other problem, though, that the plaintiff has is there wasn't a record, a, a transcript or a bystander's report of what occurred in the circuit court. And that's got a real problem uh, with what is and what is not in the record. It didn't see, it seemed the court was really troubled by what was there in the record for them to rely on to rule in the plaintiff's favor. Uh, and that's that may be a, a uh, that may be a hindrance to the plaintiff being able to prevail. Uh, but a, a very, very interesting case and one that um, lawyers should keep an eye on um, because I can see other cases where there are fee petitions where this rule, if it's if it comes out in favor of the law firm, could really expand uh, a defense to, for lawyers uh, to uh, legal malpractice actions. So, so we'll have to keep an eye on that. Uh, not really turning to our regular segment of COVID BI, not really much COVID BI uh, this week. Um, so uh, more of the status quo, we're still waiting for decisions in California in particular uh, to see what, the, if anything, the Supreme Court of California does there. For predictions sure to go wrong this week, Dan and I went one and two. Another losing week, but our overall record now is 171 and a half, 31 and a half, and 10. Um, the courts decided three cases this week that we had discussed. One was 40. 
43 Drexel Condominium Association versus Burke that we discussed on episode 112. This was a case, if you recall, where the um, there was a dispute amongst condominium owners and no one was following the, the rules and they kicked the claim on stand they kicked the claim on standing because there hadn't been a proper um, board uh, that had been elected through proper notice with certified mail as opposed to email and the court rejected uh, the a fiduciary um, an equitable fiduciary doctrine as an exception to this because this is how the parties had acted the court said that doesn't work um, so they they kicked that and they said, you can bring a derivative action perhaps because there's all kinds of problems with this association with people violating the rules all over the place. No one's following the rules about how ownership and rental and, and or anything else, it seems. It's a real, uh, it's, it's a real problem. Uh, but that was, uh, that the, the dismissal was affirmed. And so Dan and I got that one right. So now the ones we got wrong, uh, this is from the 5th District, uh, State Farm versus Bierman. This was a case we covered back on episode 44, more than a year ago, and this was argued. This is a case where <coughs> this was a second round at the, uh, at the Illinois Appellate Court. The first time it was up, the court held that the term marriage was ambiguous when applied to whether an ex-stepson, yes, an ex-stepson, was related to the insured under the policy by blood marriage or adoption, even though he wasn't related by blood, he wasn't adopted, but he still could be related by marriage, even though there had been a divorce between his father and his ex-stepmother. The court held that it was ambiguous, and so there was an affinity relationship sufficient to support that, but the court remanded because it found a question of fact on whether he resided with the uh, ex-stepmother to trigger uninsured motorist coverage under her state farm policy. So the idea is there's coverage under a policy of insurance if for both the named insured and a resident and a relative of the insured on an uninsured motor vehicle accident. So the question is, was he a relative? And the court held that he was not because, or felt that held that the following offense trial that the court had gotten it right in its analysis that there wasn't sufficient evidence to show that he was um, a relative. But the question real issue in the case was who bore the burden and the trial court held that because there was a counterclaim for declaratory relief the insured had the burden and so he made them go first and then during his in his written ruling he said you know i got that wrong the insurance company really does have the burden but they didn't present any evidence uh other than in rebuttal and they, all they presented initially was a stipulation of a policy and that there had been a claim made, uh, but they didn't present any evidence to support their theory. Um, and so the question was whether they could win or not. We said, well, hold it, you can't do that. The, the insurance company, as the plaintiff, has the burden. They've got to actually present evidence. And the court said, that nah, doesn't really matter, as it turns out. Uh, there's a special concurrence that's very interesting and made a distinction between whether this is a claim where they're trying to prove that it was within coverage or whether there's an exclusion that applies or a condition that applies. And he would have held that the, the insured did have the burden here, but ultimately it didn't matter because there wasn't evidence sufficient to show that he was a relative, or at least there wasn't a against manifest way to the evidence. The third case is West Bend Mutual versus TRRS Corporation that we covered on episode 98, where the court held 
reversed the grant of summary judgment in favor of the insurance company and held that there was a question of fact as to whether notice was timely. I, I'm going to write about this in my column this week uh, for the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, but this just continues a where you have an ambiguous notice condition. It essentially gives the insureds the opportunity to claim ignorance and create a question of fact as to whether they actually knew whether they knew they should have reported a loss, where they knew of the loss, they knew of the policy, they knew it was potentially covered, and then they just decide not to say anything to the insurance company, um, which kind of defeats the point of notice. Um, so our predictions sure to go wrong for this week. Um, the uh, So for this week, we've got the, I think there's going to be a reversal in, in the employment case in Cretella versus Ascon. I think that's going to get reversed. They're going to apply right of action. They're going to let her sue on a retaliatory discharge claim. I, I think that that's what's going to happen there. On the Dowd and Dowd case, I think they're going to affirm summary judgment there because I just don't think there's enough evidence to show, um, to create a question of fact. And in Nutter versus Schiller to Candle and Fleck, I think they're going to reverse and find that there's a basis to hold a uh, that you can bring your legal malpractice action and you aren't barred by race judicata. Which brings us to the rule of the week. Uh, during the oral argument in the uh, in the uh, Magdabola case, case started, oral argument started with Justice Hyman saying to counsel for the defendants, uh, why shouldn't we strike your brief? You, you, you had too many pages. Maybe it was, I'm sorry, it was counsel for plaintiff. Why did you, you use too many pages? He goes, what now? He says, well, yeah, you used 60 pages and 50 pages is the limit. And he says, well, judge, actually, we used a very large font. It's easier on the eyes. And we went with the, the, the uh, uh, word count limit of 15,000. We provided the, provided the required certification. He was ready for the quiet. He was ready for the issue. He was ready for the objection that Justice Hyman raised, one you wouldn't necessarily prepare for. So good for him. And that was the end of the issue because the, it, Justice Hyman admitted he hadn't counted the words. He was just going by the page number. But this guy used the uh, the, the certification that they hadn't gone over the 15,000 word limit on their opening brief. So that issue went away. And so then he went into Justice Hyman's favorite question. What's your best argument? Uh, so it was uh, he was able to parry the first issue and then deal with the uh, deal with the other issues. So with that, we'll take our leave. Thank you everybody for joining us on the Podium and Panel podcast, and look forward to seeing everybody next week on the show. I'm Dan Cotter, and on behalf of my co-host Pat Eckler. We thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the podium and panel. Each episode on the podium and panel podcast, we will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. 
They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.